My name is Dana, and um, I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, though, you haven't seen me preach yet, maybe, because uh, Tom's been hogging the pulpit through this whole Ruth series. I'm just kidding. I love the Ruth series. And um, and I'm really glad to be preaching again, though, and it's, and it's Palm Sunday. Um, if you didn't grow up in the church, Palm Sunday, you know, that's not one of the that's not one of the big holidays. So you might not be super familiar with Palm Sunday, but it's always it's always the Sunday before Easter and we're we're learning about this little story where well, it's not a little story. Anyway, about the story where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem the week before his execution. Um now I really like Palm Sunday because of a couple of experiences in my life. One is that for a little a, a period of time, for three years, I was Anglican. I went to an Anglican church, and I really loved it. And one of the things that was so funny, some of you are nodding, you know where this is going. In the Anglican churches, Palm Sunday is a huge deal, and they rent a donkey, a real one, so there's a donkey in the church on Palm Sunday, and it's a very ornate church, and people got dressed up, and, you know, it wasn't casual, and it was not a farming community. But here we were in the middle of the big city, everybody dressed up in a donkey right in the middle of the sanctuary at the front, and we had these, yeah, <laughs> that's not my church, but it did look like that, um, we had these very particular special rolls of plastic that we had, like we kept in the storeroom just for Palm Sunday, and they went like up and down the aisles and all over the front because the uh, poor donkey often didn't make it through the sermon. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> just leave that to our imaginations. But um, so that's that's one thing I miss that, and I wish I had a donkey here for you today. When I was a child, like a little, little girl, I was part of a united church, and Palm Sunday was a big deal for me then because on Palm Sunday, the kids got to go through the tunnels in the church. And I don't think this church has any tunnels, or no one has shown them to me yet, but my church growing up uh, was quite, it was sort of spread out, and you had to go around a corner, and there were these basement tunnels that ran from the Sunday school rooms in the back underneath the sanctuary and came up again outside these like back doors. And it was built that way so that the choir could get from their practice room to the back of the sanctuary and they would proceed in singing and they didn't want to have to walk outside in the winter. But on Palm Sunday, all the kids, we got to like, <laughs> so we'd be like 50 kids in this in this long single file line holding our little dried out palm branches trying to be quiet cuz they could hear us upstairs sneaking through the dark uh basement tunnels it was so much fun and then we would gather at the back and try to be quiet which is hard 50 kids outside the doors and at some point in the service our Sunday school teachers would throw open the back doors and we got to charge down the middle aisle, you know, yelling and screaming and, oh, praise Jesus, Hosanna, you know, and so that's like the best day ever when you're a Sunday school kid. Anyway, so I have to admit that Palm Sunday is going to be a little more subdued this morning. There's no kids huddled outside the library door, although our kids at Erickson Church would be amazing at charging down the center aisle, (laughs) 
They give us a preview of that every week at coffee hour. And, um, and there's also no donkey, you know, waiting to relieve himself on the brand new carpet. But, um, <laughs> but you do get me. <laughs> and, uh, and we have this great story. We're going to look at Luke's version of Palm Sunday, which is printed in your bulletins if you want to follow along. I'm going to read a little bit of this for us. This is Luke chapter 19, uh, verses 28 and following. After he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. And as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. Let's pull a couple of things out of that story. First of all, the author, Luke, tells us that Jesus and his disciples were on their way to Jerusalem. Now, that might not mean a lot to us, but Jerusalem, it's not the same as saying they were on their way to Yak or Nelson, right? It's, it's, not, it's not just geography, because for the Jewish people, Jerusalem is God's holy city. That's where the temple had been built, which was the place that the temple is built with. You can see it, like all of these courts that, that move from the outer courts into the inner courts. They get smaller and smaller. All these places, and right in the middle, shrouded by curtains, there's this very small place called the Holy of Holies, and that's where they believed the Spirit of God actually dwelled. God's Spirit would come into that place, and people couldn't go there except once a year a priest was selected to go in and offer sacrifices. But it's that's, that's the place. It has so much meaning because this temple in this city is a symbol that God has not abandoned his people. It's where they went to meet him for all of their holy festivals. It's where they hoped that God would someday bring them back to glory, right? Bring the people back and make the people great again like they were under David, King David. Because the Jews were God's chosen people. And once upon a time, far back in their history, it's not a fairy tale, but anyway, it was a while ago, they were a huge people. And they were undefeated in battle. They were wealthy and prosperous. And they were, they were in charge of their land. But by the time this story takes place, 
the Jews are living under the Roman authority. They're living under the Roman Empire. And even though they were oppressed in that situation, they hoped and they believed in a very powerful way that God would make them a great nation again. They'd been captive before. Many times in their history, they'd lived under oppressive regimes. They'd been captive by the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And every time, God had brought them through that and restored them. And that was part of their identity. And, And then all of the holy writings, all of their scriptures in the Old Testament, told them to expect a Messiah, which means a Savior. So they were prepared, they were expecting someone who would come and save them. And since what they needed saving from was this political and military regime, what they expected the Messiah to be was a sort of a warrior king who would raise up an army and overthrow the government and restore God's people to power and put one of King David's descendants on the throne in Jerusalem. So, that's a lot of background information. Thanks for sticking with me. When Luke says they were on their way to Jerusalem, it sounds like this little thing. But Jerusalem has all these threads of meaning, all of this history, all of this expectation that's attached to it. And when the people hear it, all that expectation is stirring in their hearts and souls. And so they get to this little town that's a couple of kilometers outside the city. And Jesus sends his disciples into the town to find a colt. Some versions say a donkey, and they do, and then he rides it into town. And this is very unusual, right? Jesus never rides anything anywhere. He's always walking. You never read about him riding on anything. And you can kind of see it in this picture, like, it's weird to ride a donkey, right? Like, the donkey's, like, a little bit shorter than the guy, so I feel like Jesus has got to, like, hold his feet up. I don't know. Like, it's not, that's a strange thing to ride in on. And he makes such a big deal out of it, all these very specific instructions, go in and find it and find one that's not been ridden on. It's clearly important. Here's why. Because in the Old Testament, the prophet Zechariah he writes about what the Messiah will look like when he comes. So this one that they're hoping for, when he comes, Zechariah says, your king will come to you, triumphant and victorious as he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. When Jesus decides to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, he's giving the people a sign. He's making sure that anyone out there who's still wondering about who he is will see this as a sign that the Messiah is coming. And the people get it. right? They get it. They know what he's doing because as he's riding in, the people keep taking off their cloaks and laying them down in the street in front of him, which is what you do for a king. There's a story in 2 Kings where Uh, Jehu is becoming king, and they've just had that word. And as soon as the people hear that that's going to be their new king, they take off their cloaks and cover the street, cover the stairs so that he can walk on it. That's what you do for a king. 
That's what they're doing for Jesus. And it means that this story, like there's this energy that's building in there quietly, right? They're coming up to the holy city, and Jesus is fulfilling this prophecy about the Messiah by being on the donkey. And the people are spreading their cloaks on the ground like they would for a king. And then Luke says, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. I always wonder who this crowd is. Do you ever wonder that? Anyway, I do. And so my full disclosure is that the the reason I picked Luke's gospel or Luke's version of this story is because he's the only one who tells us anything about the crowd. And he says it's the multitude of the disciples. The whole multitude. So this is way more than just his 12 guys, right? Way more than just the 12 that he has with him all the time. It's a larger group, a big crowd. And they have been following Jesus for long enough to be called disciples. So they've followed him, they've watched him, they've learned from him. And somehow, in this moment, on this road, everything falls into place for them. And they start praising God for Jesus. And Jesus, I mean, think about Jesus' ministry is only three years long. And so think about in those three years, three years doesn't seem like that long, does it? But what might they have seen if they'd been with him from the beginning? They could have seen him cleanse a man who had leprosy and call a paralyzed man to stand up and walk and seen a man with a withered hand, like stretch out his hand and use it. They would have seen him eat with tax collectors and befriend sinners. I mean, some of the guys who are in this multitude might have been the tax collectors that ate with him at Levi's house. They would have heard his incredible teaching about loving your enemies. They would have seen him raise a widow's son from the dead. They would have seen that woman who went in with the jar of perfume and broke it to anoint his feet with oil. They would have heard the parable of the sower. They would have seen him heal the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. They would have watched him feed 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish. I mean, like some of that multitude ate that bread on that hill. They would have seen him cast out demons and set people free. They would have heard the parables of the Good Samaritan and the lost sheep and the prodigal son. And maybe even just the day before, they would have seen him heal a man who was born blind, give him back his sight. And that's just like, that's just a few things, right? If you've been studying the Gospels, reading them through, every single story is this amazing, life-altering event. And Jesus has just done so many things in three years' time. And these disciples on the road that day, like with the donkey and the cloak spread and the holy city in the distance, they suddenly realize that all of the things that they've seen Jesus do means that he really might be Messiah. And they start praising God, just shouting and singing praise. Have you ever stopped to consider all of the things that you've seen Jesus do? 
Like, have you ever looked back over your life and tried to make a list, tried to remember? I'm like a kind, I'm kind of a terrible journaler, but I do it. I'm sporadic at best. I brought some of my journals. Frankly, if you read them, which I'm not inviting you to do, um, but if you were to read my journals, what you would find is that my life sounds terrible because I tend to only journal when something is going wrong and I'm like working it out in myself, right? So that's what I write down, which makes for terrible reading. But for me, it's when I go back and read these over, I am so encouraged Because I know how Jesus resolved that situation I'm writing about. I know how he answered that prayer. I know the fruit and the growth that that time produced in me. So I thought it would be fun for you to know what I was doing at this time late March over the last few years. So I read back in my journals. And lucky you. Um, At this time last year, like end of March 2017, all of my journal entries are about like, I met this new person. I don't know if they like me. Am I going to fit in to Creston? I hadn't been here for very long. And so everything is about trying to figure out my place and wondering if I was going to belong. Like what an incredible difference over the course of a year. How much I feel like I belong among you hear how much these people feel like family. I praise Jesus for that. Maybe more interesting in this old, like an older journal, um, at the end of March in 2016, I was still working with InterVarsity and I was living in Halifax. Like that seems like a whole other lifetime. And um, I was asking a lot of questions about whether it was time to leave that that work. And in a lot of different ways, Jesus was kind of piecing together and talking to me about maybe it was time for that work to be done and that place to be finished for me. And like I remember that season, <laughs> it was not fun. Um, it was so full of anxiety and grief and confusion. You know, I had no idea what to do with the fact that this, this work I thought I would spend my life on was coming to an end. And what I, what I couldn't see when I was writing about that season at the end of March, I couldn't see what Jesus was about to do. I wouldn't see what he was doing until I had a conversation with Tom fully four months later in July. So now when I look back, I can see what Jesus was doing, how he's bringing resolution, and I praise him for that. In late March of 2015, when I apparently was taking way worse care of my journals, um, it's got like no cover, but it does have coffee stains, so that makes up for it. I was at a conference the end of March, and I was learning about uh, the leadership giftings of apostles and prophets and evangelists, and, um, and how those people who have those giftings are often sort of uncomfortable in a normal church setting and the church has a little bit of trouble with them and that might not matter very much to you but I have been dealing with a very challenging situation over the last two weeks and I have been using that exact material to help me interpret it and hold it up before God and figure out a way forward and I just think what an incredible gift and how incredibly strange (laughs) that exactly three years ago, I was learning the material that I'm just seeing the fruit of now. 
um, this kind of like reflection for the sake of praising Jesus, in my opinion, is one of the best arguments for journaling. (laughs) That's why you should take it up. I mean, we have very short memories and we are incredibly self-centered as a people group, right? Like, I mean, it's okay if you think that you are, because I am too. We all are. We just forget. We just forget what Jesus did. I forget what Jesus did yesterday, let alone two years ago or a decade ago. It's hard to remember. How do you want to do that in your life? How could you intentionally remember and praise Jesus for the works of power that he's done? Because it's right to do that. It's even necessary. Luke says in this story, some Pharisees tried to get Jesus to stop the shouting, like to quiet the disciples down. And that could be for a lot of reasons. I mean, it could be that the Pharisees don't believe in Jesus, and so they don't, they don't want this ruckus going on. It could be, one commentator said, that those Pharisees who were part of the crowd were disciples themselves. But they were worried that once they got into the city, the Romans would arrest them all for shouting that somebody else was the king. Either way, Jesus' answer is so profound. He says, listen, if these guys don't do it, the stones are going to shout. The stones are going to cry out praises. Think about how beautiful that is. As the Messiah is coming into the holy city of God, it is so right and so good to praise that creation itself would cry out if the people didn't do it. Creation that was there at the beginning that has been waiting and longing. Scripture says creation is groaning as it waits for the kingdom of God to come. Creation would burst into song. That's what the praise of the people is doing. That's what our praise does. They're so right about who Jesus is, and it's so necessary to praise him. But then they're also kind of wrong, right? Like kind of mistaken. Because they've seen all these wonderful deeds of power, and they know he can do anything, and they expect that once he reaches Jerusalem, he's going to absolutely overthrow the government and put the Jewish people back in control. And nothing could be further from the truth. And Jesus tries to tell them, like in the chapter before this, chapter 18, He takes the 12, his 12 uh, closest friends aside, and he says, look, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man is going to happen. And what that means is that he's going to be handed, I, Jesus, he's saying, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and mocked and insulted and spat upon. And after they've flogged him, they'll kill him. And on the third day, he'll rise again. And then Luke, the author, says, but... The disciples understood nothing about all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. And then just before today's text, Luke says, Jesus went on to tell them, the whole crowd, to tell the crowd a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they, the crowd, thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. 
And the parable, which is the parable of the minas, if you've looked at that, is about, it's about these servants who have to do business with their master's money while the master goes away to try to become a king. And he's gone for a long time, way longer than they expect. And they have to figure out what to do while he's gone. And Jesus tells that story because he wants them to know, you think it's going to happen immediately, but it's not. It's going to take time. It's not going to be the way you expect when we get to Jerusalem. Actually, even as they're coming down towards the city, things start to go sideways. Right? They expected him maybe to charge in or to be talking about battles. But verse 41 says, as he approached the city, he wept over it. He cries over the holy city. Because the people who are in there have forgotten what makes peace. And he prophesies over the city and he says in part, your enemies will surround you and they will crush you to the ground. Well, he stands outside the city weeping and then he goes into the temple And he gets so angry inside the temple that he's flipping over tables. He's turning over tables and driving out the people who are selling things. Because they're selling in the courts that are for the Gentiles. The temple's set up so there are different areas for different people groups. And the outermost courts for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. So that's where everybody else is supposed to come. Everybody else who wants to know about God, who isn't sure about God, who wants to come close and learn about him, they're supposed to come there. But instead, all these people who are buying and selling things have set up their tables and taken over that space, and Jesus can't handle it. He flips the tables over. And so instead of storming the city and overthrowing the government and restoring the power to Israel, Jesus is crying over the city and speaking judgment over it, and then getting so angry that he's driving the businessmen out of the temple. And in some ways I think, well, that's about right, isn't it? I mean, when was the last time that God did what you expected him to do? (laughs) Right? Just as often as we forget the amazing things that Jesus has done in our lives, we also forget that he never does those things the way we expect him to. It rarely goes according to our plans. And so, do you find yourself anxious in this season or worried? Does God seem to, you know, be doing something differently than you expect? Or does he seem to not be doing very much of anything at all? I want to encourage you, look back through your life. Take stock of the other times you thought he was kind of missing in action. And consider how he came through then. Jesus is consistently surprising. He's always unexpected. I mean, five days from now, we'll be gathered for Good Friday. We're gathered to remember his death, his execution by crucifixion. Something that on this day... The cheering, shouting, praising disciples could never have imagined. If you told them that was coming, they would have laughed at you. I mean, Jesus does tell them that's coming, and they'd laugh at him. 
But he chose to submit himself to that death. You know, he walked toward that willingly. He was even walking toward it on this day, riding toward it on a donkey, hearing people cheer, knowing he was about to crush their expectations. He chose that death because it would lead to his resurrection and the full and complete restoration of humanity to God once and for all. Jesus is always doing something great. He's always doing something so incredible that the stones would cry out in praise if we don't do it. But it's never what we expect. Okay, so what are we going to do with this story? I really want us to take seriously the invitation to remember what he's done and praise him for it. We need to do that, to look back at what Jesus has done and praise him, both because it's right and good to do it, but also because it shores up our trust. It helps us trust him in the future and even in the present. And so if you have an hour this week, I want you to consider trying something like this. Try making a timeline of your life over the last year or two years. So literally just you start with a line on a page and then put some fixed things in, right? Things like your birthday or your anniversary or Christmas that happen every year. This is Christmas. They didn't have a tree. Um, And then add in some major life events, things that you know when they happened, right? Like you moved to a new house or you started a new job or you had a baby, or started school, or you took a major trip. So that you have some kind of contour on your, on your timeline. And then start filling in the things that were going on for you. Things like that six-month period when you were really struggling with finances. Or the summer when your doctors couldn't figure out what was causing the health issues. Or the month when you were learning about patients because you have a toddler. Or the fall you took Alpha for the first time. All kinds of things that you know were taking place in that, in that period. Fill out the timeline of your life. And I am pretty sure that just doing the work of remembering what was going on um, is going to be a source of great revelation in and of itself. There's going to be tons of things you forgot. But if you want to go further than that, ask yourself these questions. When in this season, when was I experiencing Jesus' presence most closely? When did I feel Jesus most closely with me? When did did Jesus feel far away? How did those seasons contribute to my growth? And where has God been at work? And then if you really want to go even further than that, Try asking this question. When I look back over two or three years, are there any recurring themes here? So what that means is, uh, do I seem to like be wrestling with the same questions over and over and over again? Do I seem to have the same kind of struggles every six months or so? You know? Or at the same time every year, that's a really hard time for me. And just notice, what are the recurring themes? Because then you can ask, what might Jesus be revealing to me through that? 
My guess is that we're going to find a few things that we're not super proud of. That that always happens. Uh, But you're also going to find way more things that you are totally surprised by. Things that you forgot about. Right? Ways that you've grown or that God was faithful that you totally missed because you already moved on. You're already on to the next thing in your life. When I was living in Halifax, after I finally handed in my resignation at my previous job, that was in May, there was this season where I was putting out tons of resumes and not hearing anything back. And a couple of things I thought were for sure in the bag fell through. And I was terrified that I was never going to find another job. You know, and and I had not, like, I'm not really prone to anxiety or panic, but I would have these moments of panic where I'd pull my car over on the side of the road to just frantically scroll through job postings on my phone. And then one day in July, I saw an ad on my Facebook feed, which I tried to find, but we took it down. Um, We are continuing to search for a full-time associate pastor which was posted by my friend, Tom Greentree. And everybody knows what happened after that, because here I am. (laughs) Okay. But the thing is, I had never heard of the Covenant Church, like literally never heard of the Covenant Church. And I had no idea where Creston was. And I would never have considered this job. I wasn't looking for this job. Never have considered it if Jesus had not been, I believe, looking back, consistently and deliberately closing all of these doors that I was trying to force open. And I did not know that's what he was doing when I was parked on the side of the road crying over my LinkedIn page. I didn't know. But looking back, I can see how he was leading me on this unexpected but very good path, and I can praise him for that. And I believe that every single one of us can look back on his deeds of power and praise him. And we need to do it because the future is uncertain, just like it was for the disciples in today's story. The future is uncertain. It's likely to be different from what we expect and maybe incredibly hard. But the memory of the past tells us the truth about who Jesus is. And in this strange and holy moment between the future and the past, in this present, we can remember who Jesus is and praise him for who he is and who he always was and who he always will be. Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. I thought that I would bring some stones to share with you today. So they're in a vase here in the middle. I'm quite sure that they are smaller than the ones that were around Jesus, but they'll do. Um, and uh, we're going we're gonna to celebrate the sacrament of communion today, and that is one of the best ways that God's people have, over the years, come together to remember what he's done and praise him for it. And as you're coming forward to receive communion today, I invite you to take some stones and you can carry them around in your pocket or leave them on your bedside table or let them rattle around in the cup holder of your car that's fine because all of those things are going to be a way for you to remember 
to remember what has God done in my life and to praise him for that.